Thank you, Paul, very much, and team. That song was very true of, of many people around, uh, around the church this week. Um, if you, by the way, if you're visiting, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors, not the pastor. So uh, just give that qualification here before we begin. Um, it's my joy to preach this morning. Uh, but I wish, I wish we could have had a time lapse to play from just this week around the church. And just as I, as I look out and see um, all of the faces, um, I, was, I was really tempted to check the security camera footages to see what time some people went home last night. Um, but the transformation of the stage into this, and by the way, if you're visiting, this isn't normal for us. We don't decorate like this normally, though I'm kind of, I'm kind of enjoying it. Um, but we've got our kid venture coming up this week, and the amount of cardboard that has been glued together and painted and cut out by jigsaws and propped up by duct tape and PVC pipe is remarkable. It's very amazing. And uh, Don Meyer was hoping that this would collapse. He was like, it's a real house of cards. I want to see it go down on Sunday morning when the troops come down running forward. So excited about that. And, and I hope this is just a reminder to be praying throughout the week. If you're not, if you're not involved and in actively serving, you oh, please be actively involved in praying for, for just this opportunity we have to share the gospel with children. Um, so be praying for that this coming week. And then the transformation of the Ed Wing has been, has been remarkable. Um, it's been a lovely thing to see, and uh, just all the effort that has gone into that has been such an encouragement, not only getting to work together, but just seeing the amount of people come out and be involved in various abilities and labors and skills. And uh, I, like Eric, will graciously not name names, but you all know who they are. So um, be sure to say thank you and... Uh, we just praise God for his work around here. And it's really, a, it's really kind of a cool thing. I was, I was thinking about this morning. We're continuing in the book of Ezra. We're in Ezra chapter 9, if you want to turn there this morning. Um, but as we continue, one of the themes that we've been looking at throughout this book is how God, God restores his people. And I was just thinking about that idea of restoring something. And we have a very real um, thing that we can look out in our, in our parking lot. And if you've ever been in the Ed Wing and saw those restrooms, you would have walked in and gone like, this, this needs some restoration. Needs some restoration. And, and we look at that in our society. There, there are TV shows that are made about this. This concept of, of taking, you know, this old house, right? This old house... We don't want it to be quite this old anymore. And so it's the process of updating it and, and bringing it, re- renewing it, right? Refreshing it. it. It looked new at one point in its life, and time has gone by and it doesn't anymore, and, and there's, there's a need for something to be restored. Um, maybe you're a car person. Um, I have a father-in-law who's a, who's a car person, and just I've gotten to see old vehicles uh, be restored over time as, you know, like, it looks like this. This doesn't look new. And pieces and parts come off. And, and normally that process of restoring something is really backwards. <laughs> like, you have to go really far back at fixing things before you actually begin, begin moving forward. But we, we see in our world the value. We, we value this, right? The transformation of something and, and restoring it. Restoring it. And, and those are, I won't say they're simple tasks, but they're relatively straightforward, right? If you have a rusty car, what do you do? You have to remove the rust, right? You've got to go backwards and before you can come forward and put new primer and new paint on. Uh, but there are more complicated things in our world that need restoring. Like relationships. Which aren't quite so straightforward in restoring, are they? You think about other things in our life that that are broken. As we look around our world and our culture, we start to think about how uh, maybe there's a natural de- disaster that sweeps through an area and just devastates a community and about what it takes to, to restore that. And you think about what it would take to actually restore peace on earth. And I know when we're voting, we think we have the answers, but if we like are really quiet and sit with it for a moment, I, and I said, okay, I would like you to explain to me how you would restore the world. Those are much more complicated questions, but we see the need, don't you? See the need. And I think the reason that this is such an important thing to be going through in the scriptures is that the idea of restoration is key to understanding God's work 
and God's plan, what God has been doing, and what God is doing, and what God will, will do. And so as we look at this Ezra chapter 9 this morning, one of the things that we're going to see is, is two critical steps in the process of, of restoration or being restored. And both are the gracious work of God, and I pray they are bearing fruit in our lives. But how does God restore his people? In our passage, we're going to see it involves conviction and confession. The work of God in restoring his people requires conviction and confession. Let's pray before we read our passage together this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. The gift that it is. I pray that your gracious spirit would give us understanding this morning. Give us understanding not only of what was going on when it was written, but the impact that you desire to have in our lives through it this morning. The Spirit, I thank you that you are indwelling every believer here this morning. And may your work be evident among us. I pray that you would use this this time and this opportunity uh, to teach us, to instruct us, but also to move us, Lord, and to move us uh, for the sake of the name of Jesus, uh, to move us into more likeness to him, and for the good of our community here in this church, Lord, to move us more to the likeness of him and for the sake of the world. To conform us to the name of Jesus Christ, that his name might be exalted on earth. And we know this is your work and your work alone. And so we ask that you do it. And we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Church, will you stand with me in honor of the, the word of the Lord as we read Ezra chapter 9. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race is intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe. And pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. And everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn and fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity and to plunder and to open shame as it is to this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant, And to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves. Yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us. But has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruin, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. 
which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt... Since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who could escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we have been left an escaped remnant as it is to this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For no one can stand before you because of this. You may be seated. How does God restore his people? And the first thing that we see in our passage here is that he brings communal conviction of sin. How does God restore his people? He begins it in this passage with bringing a communal conviction of sin. This is one of those passages where I feel like we're jumping in to page like 950 of a 1,200 page book because there's so much context here that I really want to cover. I only want to cover like 2,000 years of Israelite history. That's it. It's kind of necessary to the story, though, because we look at this and we go, like, what's going on? Help, help me understand it. And I'm, so I'm going I'm to pray with me that I can do this in maybe five minutes or less. One of the helpful things to understand about the God of the, of the Bible is that he's a God who makes covenants. And a, a covenant is simply a, a way that we describe a, a binding agreement. <laughs> you're, in a, you're in a cell phone covenant, aren't you? You pay your bill. They provide you. Can you hear me now? So that's, that's the idea of a covenant. Or a marriage is a covenant. It's agreement between two parties, right? Or you have a, some kind of an agreement with um, your mortgage company. You pay the bills, you get to keep the house, you stop paying the bills, they get to take the house. So it's that, that idea. There's this, there's this binding agreement. And that's the way that God, from the beginning, has actually interacted with humanity. I don't know if you know this or not. This is a, um, I remember learning this a few years back and going like, really? There's a covenant in the Garden of Eden. Like, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. That was, a, that, was a, that was a very simple covenant. I give you this and every tree to eat but that one tree. That's, that's the agreement, right? It was a very simple agreement. But if they ate of that tree, there were consequences, right? If they broke the covenant, there were consequences. And here we are <laughs> experiencing the consequences of that broken covenant. Now, from there, the scriptures move on. And one of, the, one of the next covenants that we, we would find, there's, there's more, I'm not going to cover them all, but was the Abrahamic covenant, a, a covenant that God made with a man named Abraham about a, a promised land that he was going to give to him and his descendants, about giving Abraham descendants that were as numerous as the stars in the sky, and about giving him this, this blessing, this blessing and this promise that God made to Abraham that through you, all the nations of the earth will be, will be blessed. Abraham had kids, they had kids, more kids, 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 kids. Abraham's offspring were, were later known as the Israelites. Okay, we're jumping way forward. We just moved a long ways. Okay, Israelites. God made a covenant with the Israelites called the Mosaic Covenant. It's based on, given through Moses, right? Mosaic Covenant. And that is, that is a covenant. I want to read, read part of it to you from Exodus chapter 19. God is speaking to to the people of Israel, and he says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a covenant that God made with them, and, and the agreement, it was, it was, if you heard it, it's conditional. If you will obey my voice. And you guys have heard, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. That, that was part of the law. He establishes this law. He gives us this law that you're going to follow. You're going to be my people. You're going to be a kingdom. You're going to be a nation. And I'm going to be on your side as your God. I'm going to actually live in your midst, in the temple, and in the, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. I'm going to be with you. But the condition is, what is it? Keep. You have to keep the covenant. You keep your side, I'll keep my side. And if you want to... 
Do you guys read cell phone contracts? If you want to read the contract, you can look at Leviticus chapter 27 or 26 and then Deuteronomy 27 through 28. It's the cliff notes. There's these blessings for obedience and these curses for disobedience. And that's what the children of Israel were, were living under. Did they follow the covenant? No. They broke it. They broke it really bad. And God cast them out of this promised land. He had taken them into this promised land. And as they're coming into the promised land, he makes this interesting comment. As they're coming in, they were coming into a land that had been previously inhabited. So they're coming in and God is using his people in judgment of these nations that live there. And that's the people we see, many of the people that we see listed in our passage this morning in Ezra. It's, it's these people who had filled this land with things that God hated. And I, I don't know if you ever thought of God like that, but God actually has things that he likes and things that he doesn't like. And these people that were living in the land had filled it from end to end, God says, had filled it from end to end with things that God hated. And, and things like, you're like, well, what, what kind of things does God hate? God hates it when people burn their children as sacrifices. To give you a context of like what was going on in this land that God would like drive the people out and why he, he demanded that his people remain separate. He said, listen, I don't want you mingling. I don't want you to mingle when you come into this land with these people. I hate the way they live. And if you mingle... You're going to pick up their ways. You're going to adopt their cultures. You're going to take up their practices. And you know what that's going to make me do to you? It's going to make me hate you. I'm going to hate your ways. And I'm going to do to you what I did to them. I'm going to drive you out. And that's what happened to Israel. We read through the, in the book of 2 Kings how one of the kings of Israel burned his son as an offering. Just like the nations before had practiced their abominations. And so you want to know why God's mad. That, that makes God mad. And so he drives them out. He drives them out. But part of the covenant that God had made with the children of Israel is he, he promised not to forget his covenant. He promised to remember them that if his people would humble themselves and that they would confess, they would admit and confess the iniquity of their fathers and their iniquity, then he would hear and he would remember. He would recall to his mind. It's not as if God forgot the covenant, but he would bring it back fresh. And so in Ezra... What we have is this people of Israel who had been in exile. They'd been out of the land. They'd been gone to Babylonia. They had experienced God's casting them out. And now God was bringing them back into his land. Back to the promised land. Back to Jerusalem. Back to the center of worship. Back into fellowship with him. Back into restoring this covenant that is based on, if you obey blessing. If you disobey, curses. And it is amazingly vivid in their minds, the consequences. Does that make sense? Like, like they understand the gravity of the situation because they just got back. And they're looking around them at a community that was devastated and destroyed. And so that's the, the context that we find this passage in as the Lord sets in to bring about conviction in the hearts of, of his people. So foundational to God restoring his people is a communal conviction over sin. What does conviction mean? Conviction has different meanings. Uh, but this morning I want to, here's Merriam-Webster's definition of conviction. It's the act of convincing a person of error. So when we talk about conviction this morning, I want you to think of that. Convincing a person of, of error. You ever tried to do that? You ever seen somebody and you're like, hey, you're wrong. And now... I'm going to convince you. That, that's a tough work, isn't it? That is a tough work. And that's why we see it's such an act, of, an act of God. That is the unseen work of God in this, this passage. You see this issue that they're struggling with. It's not a new issue. What's new is the conviction. What's new is the understanding that what they're doing is wrong. 
This has been going on, but what's come to light is the community leaders now are bringing it to Ezra, who is the priest, and they're saying, look at what is going on. This isn't right. We are living in error. We've been living in error, and that's why they bring it to Ezra the priest. And the guilt and the problem was widespread. As they come to Ezra, they list, it's the people of Israel, it's the priests of Israel, it's the Levites. Like, nobody's innocent in this. And they go on to point out that it's the princes and the rulers that are the worst offenders. But it's not just that the guilt was widespread, it's also that the conviction, this understanding in the hearts and minds of people that this is wrong, that's widespread too. Because we have these princes, these rulers of the people who are bringing it forward to Ezra, we look at Ezra's response is he's just appalled. He's totally overwhelmed with grief. He rips his clothing, not just his outer robe in a sign of grief, but his inner robe as well. When's the last time you tore something in just with grief and despair? But not only that, but he, he, he creates a bald spot in his, on his head and on his beard. I was just thinking about this morning. I, I was shaving this morning going like, what would it take for me to rip out part of my beard? So far, I haven't discovered it in life. Like the concept of that, like actually like so full of grief, so full of mourning, so distraught by what is happening. He's wrecked. And then in verse four, it describes the people who trembled at the words of God on account of this act of unfaithfulness. They gather around Ezra as he's sitting on the ground, likely for hours, just sitting in silence, appalled. And this community of people begins to gather around him. And the text goes to, to great lengths to graphically communicate the emotion-filled response and the deep conviction that this community was feeling in light of their unfaithfulness to the covenant with God. This is a community of people with a sudden change of heart, a sudden change of mind about the way they've been living. It's good for us to see why this is critical to God's work of restoring his people. Why is is conviction critical? I want you all to think, I want you all to think, I really do. I want you all to think of a time. I want you all to think of a time when you have had a relationship with, that broke because of something that someone did wrong to you, okay? So I want you to be offended. Ready? Get offended, okay. Thanks, Andrew. Let's bring up all the bad things in life. (laughs) Okay. Think of a time when a relationship that you were in, maybe it's, it's plenty of examples that you probably have if you're married or had parents ever or siblings, or a friend, <laughs> or a boss, or a coworker, or really anything, right? So there are these moments in life where our relationships break because of wrong that is done to us. And we're just going to imagine for the sake of this that everything in your broken relationship was the other person's fault, okay? We're going to imagine that because I know how wonderful you all are. You know what would make it really hard to restore that relationship is if that person who wronged you repeatedly approached you and said, I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. Well, are you sorry? I'm not sorry. I did nothing wrong. That relationship is going to be immensely difficult to restore unless they come under conviction. Does that make sense? Unless something changes in their heart or in their mind where they go from, I've done nothing wrong, to, I see what I did wrong. For a relationship to be restored, their eyes would need to be opened, their heart and their mind changed to see, oh my goodness. I know why this broke. It's my fault. I broke it. 
if that happens, then there's hope for the relationship to be, to be restored. And that's what's happening here among this covenant community of God's people. There's a conviction spreading throughout the com- community that we see what's going on. We see what's not right. And that is, that is conviction. And what we have to understand this morning is until we have comprehended and felt conviction, our relationship with God will always be broken. Because in our relationship with God, God is not the offending party. God is literally the only one who can look and say, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. And so that our relational break with him is our fault. And until we come to that point of acknowledging and admitting it and recognizing it, reconciliation is impossible. I want us to understand this morning that conviction, (laughs) while tremendously unpleasant, it's really unpleasant. I hate, hate conviction. I hate when in like a relationship moment with Adrian, my wife, I hate that moment where I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm the problem. That is a terrible feeling. But it's the only hope of reconciliation. It's a gift. It's, It's a hope that there's a possibility that can move forward now. And so I want us to understand the gift of grace that conviction is, but it's not meant to stay at conviction. Because feeling bad and recognizing your error is not the totality of fixing a relationship, is it? It's the beginning. See, conviction is meant to lead us to confession. That's the second thing we see in our passage here, that God... And restoring his people not only leads them to conviction, but he leads them to confession of, of sin. And this, this for the Israelites, there's a, there's a passage in, in Leviticus chapter 26. And it's talking about the judgment that, it's talking so many years before of what they're actually experiencing now. It's talking way ahead of time of like what was going to be coming. And, and God was saying to the people back in that day, this is what's going to happen I'm going to send you into a land and you who are left, you're going to rot away in your enemy's lands because of your iniquity. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking in contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for the iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. See, confession is necessary for the process of reconciliation, of restoring. It's necessary. If they confess their iniquity, if they confess their treachery, if they confess their unfaithfulness, it's right here spelled out in God's covenant with them. And so let's take a moment to look. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me. As we turn to, to Ezra's confession. Ezra's the, the priest and he's the, the one we read this confession from. Obviously the leaders had confessed to Ezra. And now Ezra in prayer confesses to them. And I want to look at four components from Ezra's confession. The first thing that we all want us to see is the humbled heart. The humbled heart. In verse 5 through, five through 6, we really, we really see this. That he describes as I arose from my humiliation. <laughs> as I arose from my humiliation. He had been sitting on the ground, robes torn, distraught all day. Not eating. Just in utter turmoil before the Lord. Not exalting himself. Not pleading his case. He was just silent in guilt. And he comes before the Lord and he expresses how he's ashamed And he's embarrassed because of their sin and their guilt. Like Ezra is not, he's not holding back. He's not like, you ever heard a bad apology? Like, sorry that I offended you. Like, it's not Ezra. There is a a humility and a depth here. Like he's just, 
He's practically lying naked before the Lord. Like, I've got nothing. There's no covering left. And the reason a humbled heart is, is so critical to confession is because, because of the way that pride really is an enemy of, of restoring relationships. Because when we're proud, we try and justify ourselves. I was mean to you because you were mean. I, I said that really mean, nasty thing to you because I've been stressed at work and I haven't slept well. And yeah. You see the justification? It's like a half-hearted confession. But not Ezra's confession. See, humility is really having a proper view of self and not trying to prop yourself up with excuses and justifications like pride makes us feel. But humility is the ability to see our failures and to simply make no justification for them but acknowledge them before the Lord. The second thing we see here in his confession is, is this verbal acknowledgement of guilt and wrongdoing. It's a very, he, he begins generally and then he gets more specific. Again, you think about relationships, like, I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? Let's talk through the details. And how much more important it is to be specific about what you've done. And, and that's, that's the key of covering the details that Ezra begins to walk through on account of the people of the things that had happened in the past, of the things that their fathers had done, of the things that they were guilty of, of the things that they were now guilty of themselves. I mean, if you go back to the idea of restoring an old car with rust, how important it is it to get all of the rust? If you just kind of deal with it, but you're not diligent to do the detailed work of addressing what happens when you cover it up, it's going to come to light. It actually hasn't been restored. It's been... It's been put aside, it's been ignored, it's been swept over. So true confession requires a, a verbal acknowledgement of, of guilt and of wrongdoing, specifically of how the violations of, of God's commands and God's covenants have been broken. The third thing we see in his confession would be the acknowledgement and acceptance of consequences. We look at this in verse 7. He, he, he looks at their guilt, the guilt of their fathers, <laughs> and their iniquities. And he looks at the, 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 the suffering that has come, the consequences that have come because of that. You see, and see Ezra makes this interesting connection I think is really helpful, it would be really helpful for us to make um, in confession, he makes a connection between sin and suffering. That the things that they are currently enduring and suffering and the bad consequences in their life are a direct consequence of their rebellion against God. Now, we need to see that the consequences in our lives are often due to rebellion against God as well. Uh, and before expanding on this, I have to make this really big qualifying statement. And I would really love for you to write this down or just like mark it in the notes. Because I need you to understand that not all suffering is a consequence of specific sin. Okay? Can I say that again? Don't fall asleep. If you're sleeping, wake up. <laughs> not all suffering is a consequence of your sin. That's really important for us to understand. I don't want anyone leaving this morning with this idea that if, if I'm suffering, it's obviously because I've sinned. That's not true. That's bad doctrine. The Bible corrects it time and time again. You think about the story of the man named Job who went through a period of terrible suffering in his life. His kids died. His wealth vanished. His health was gone. His wife looked at him and said, curse God and die, bro. And his friends showed up and they said, what'd they say? If you're suffering like this, you obviously did something wrong. And they were wrong. And so I don't want us to have that understanding or that theology of suffering. We have to be careful in these grounds because not all suffering is directly correlated to our sin. But some is. Some is. God's command, you shall not covet. Do you realize how much of our economy is driven, in, driven by coveting? 
you know what the evidence of our covetousness as just a nation is? It's our debt. Our lack of satisfaction with what God has provided in the moment of time here, our longings for more. And do you know what debt brings? You do. It brings anxiety and fear. Like, oh shoot, it's come and do again. Like checking the balances. That kind of suffering is, is legitimately, and not always, not all, I'm not, again, I'm not saying all debt is bad. But some is. That makes sense? And sometimes we suffer because of the decisions that we made. I know there are kids in the room. Hi, kids. Like, God has really made it clear um, to you. Like, God's given this really clear commandment. Children, honor your father and mother. You guys know that one, right? Yeah. What happens when you don't? Is life just like glamorous? You're like, no. Like a lot of times that you, consequences, right? Children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And you may not know this, but we adults were once children too. And we know that disobedience in that area literally produces suffering and consequences in your life that are not pleasant, right? Like it's not pleasant to lose TV for a week or a month or forever, as I sometimes threaten. Um, Like, that's a direct consequence of of disobedience. We see that. We could go through this time and time again, like how many times, uh, maybe it's our anger and the suffering that comes, like in relational fallout, because we just popped off. Or selfishness, and and, and again, the suffering that comes because of that. And so I want us to understand that it's an important thing as we we begin to understand and the need of admitting and confessing wrong, that a helpful part of that is to see the fallout that's attached. Does that make sense? And to make the connection before God, oh my goodness, I see how you said don't do this, and then when I did it, This consequence happened and then I complained about that too. Like, I'm tracking it back, Lord. I see it. So as we learn to confess, don't skip the work of acknowledging and accepting the consequences of sin. The fourth thing we see in Ezra's confession is we see he compares... He compares the way of his people to the way of his God. He makes this comparison in the way that the covenant community had been living in unfaithfulness to God contrasted with the way that God had been living in faithfulness to them. And that that has an interesting impact, has a really interesting impact. Sometimes we compare and contrast the wrong things. And I think one of the ways that we can minimize, minimize sin and it doesn't impact us in the way, it doesn't have the gravity that it should, is we compare ourselves to, to one another or to the culture around us. And if we're not as bad as that, we kind of feel okay. I think one of the reasons that Ezra has this immense emotional response is because he's not comparing himself to the nations around him. He's looking at their, their actions and their thoughts in light of God. That's a different standard. It brings a different level of conviction. And it's immensely corrective Look at verse 8, that God has shown grace and God has not forsaken, but giving loving kindness to revive and restore. But verse 10, but we have forsaken your commandments. Verse 15, you are righteous and we are before you in our, in our guilt. He's looking at God and his standard. To bring about the corrective. And that's the only way that the work of restoration can actually happen, friends. If you're looking at the right source material. Does that make sense? 
Like, I want to restore this thing. What does restoration look like? What is something, what does a car look like restored? What are you comparing it to? What's the standard? When you're replacing your house and, and you know, if, the, if you're replacing your kitchen, you know what your old cabinets look like and they pull them out. If you come back and the contractors put them back in and they just lick their thumb and they wipe the smudge off, they're like, there you go, it's restored. You're not going to be happy because that's not what restoration looks like. And so when we think about this idea of God restoring his people, they have to have a vision of what they're being restored to, which requires that they don't look at the culture around them. It requires that they don't look at one another. It requires that they look to him. That makes sense. When we fail to see God's grace, when we fail to see God for who he is, when we fail to see what God has done, is doing, and will do, we will always minimize sin. So long as we minimize sin, the communal work that God is doing in the world of restoration will cease. I want to take a moment and, and apply, I hope it's been applicational so far, but I want to apply this even further to us. Because the reality is we're not, majority of us, I would assume, are not Jews under the covenant of Moses. So how does this apply to this community? I think conviction and confession are actually meant to lead lead us. As we think about conviction and confession in this passage, it's meant by God to lead us to Christ and the need for a new covenant. The first thing that we should see is is how this passage displays how hopeless we would all be if we were under a covenant of if you obey, then blessings. Did you guys, do you guys notice what, what did Ezra ask for? In this passage, nothing. There's no request of God. He's distraught because he has no leg to stand on. They're just guilty of violating. There's no, there's no sacrifice for this sin. There's no erasing this disobedience. And he's left with this, this covenant where if we obey, then blessings We didn't obey. Oh, shoot. And so this leads us to this understanding that none of us can keep God's law. We don't measure up. No one will be justified by keeping God's law. It can't be done. Ezra couldn't do it. The Israelites couldn't do it. And neither can we. You can't do it. If you try to justify yourself before God... By keeping his standard, you are condemned. We are before you in our guilt. No one can stand before you because of this. And so here Ezra the priest interceding on behalf of his people, he just confesses. He identifies with the sinfulness of his community because he had no hope, nothing but the steadfast love of the Lord, nothing but the Lord's righteousness. Because according to the terms of the covenant, keeping the law, they were dead. And this is what the New Testament says in Galatians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. I want you to to get to read this with me this morning. Galatians 3. Paul. Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He states this thing that we've seen in Ezra so plainly. He says this. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And that's what we see in Ezra 9. 
It fully exposes the futility of trying to have peace with God by your own merit. And God uses conviction and confession to point us to our own inability to stand before God. Because until we, can, until we admit our guilt, there will be no restoring. I find it very interesting that Ezra's prayer of confession comes at the time of the evening sacrifice. It's approximately 3 p.m. And, and, and Israel would have a morning sacrifice and they would have this evening sacrifice. Day in, day out. Every day it was supposed to be offered. When we think about what a sacrifice pictures or displays, a sacrifice pictures that there's a cost to pay. It was this daily reminder that sin brings death and that fellowship with God, relationship with God, requires something to cover guilt, or there's no forgiveness for sins. And we think about this passage in Galatians chapter 3, if no one's justified by the law, how can anyone be justified? Well, that's why Galatians 3 continues. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. They don't live by the law. There's a righteousness that comes that is by faith, apart from the law. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather they, the one who does them, shall live by them. But the law is, excuse me, let me read that again. Galatians 3.12, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What's the point that that Paul is making in Galatians 3 is that you can't be justified by the law. There's no justification there. And that's what Ezra knew. There's no justification here by the law. We're guilty. All he had to do was put his faith in God. He had nothing else. No leg to stand on. And that is the new covenant that we come to in Jesus Christ. That is the new covenant that we come to in Jesus Christ. Where God, knowing that there was no way for us to be right with himself, he provides the reconciliation. He provides the redemption. He provides the sacrifice for sins. And so that Jesus Christ, the great high priest, came to be the atonement for sinners. And he now intercedes on behalf of all who come to him. He intercedes before all, or on behalf of all, who come under the conviction of violating God's law and confess their sins. And we see this all throughout the passages of the New Testament, this new covenant that is in Jesus Christ and its superiority to this old covenant of Moses. I want to read a few passages to you this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See why conviction and confession are necessary? We, we have no sin. I have nothing. There's, I'm good with God. You're wrong. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, what is he? He is faithful and just to forgive us. Our sins. Not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Ezra shows us our need for a new covenant. It shows us our need for a new covenant, a covenant that is not based on works, but is based on grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what this passage leads us to. And so we should praise God for the work of conviction and praise God for the work of confession. We should desire it as a community of people because we recognize those are the things that lead us to this new covenant of grace. Those are the things that lead us to the God's work of restoring his people. The hour is late, but I want to give you two, two more things here, just briefly. In Christ, a new covenant community is created, and that's the church. 
But I don't know if you think of that very often. Like, as you're looking around here, are you looking around going like, hey, we have a covenant together. We have a covenant together. We're in a covenant with Jesus Christ together. We are a community of covenant people. We are people that God has called to himself. This big picture thing of God is not just redeeming you. He's not just restoring you. He's restoring you to me and us to one another and us to the world and the world through us, through Jesus Christ. And he's exalting the name of Jesus through it. Don't forget the big picture of what God is doing. That when God brings you to a covenant to himself, he brings you to a covenant community. A holy people for himself, cleansed from every defilement. And that being a part of this covenant community that we, means we have, we have a community that is concerned with living in the fulfillment of this covenant we have with Jesus Christ. And maybe you need a refresher on that. Maybe you're like, you know what? I need a refresher on what, <laughs> what the terms of my agreement with Jesus are. I know it's holy of grace. And when you grasp that grace, it completely transforms the way that you live. It turns it upside down and inside out and backwards and however else something can be changed. It absolutely restores it. And so to look around at one another and to go like, ah, we we have a responsibility to one another, not only in the way that we live, but in the way that we respond as a community in covenant with Jesus Christ in the church. And because we are a covenant community created by Jesus Christ, this should be a community of grace. That's the final thing I want to point to. Confession of sin, conviction of sin. It can be painful things. Painful things. Painful for a community to walk through and to go through. But I hope you've seen what God intends to do through them and the blessing of them. And because we're all a part of this community that has received grace, forgiveness, and cleansing from sin, we should have the same attitude towards one another. The same concern and love for one another. We should have the spirit of Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should, should what? Restore him. In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, see the way this, the way this understanding and this, when we experience conviction and confession and the restoration of God himself and we recognize what he's doing, it ought to transform us into be that kind of people who are longing to see that work in the lives of the people around us. Who have the same disposition of Jesus Christ that he's had towards us. Who don't look at others in sin and out of a, a legalistic mindset and out of like, you better obey God's law. But rather out of love and compassion and concern and going like, do you understand what Christ has done? Do you understand God's desire to like see you restored and to see you freed and to see you healed and to see you reconciled and to see you prosper and blessed? It is necessary for you to live within his gracious terms and to have that kind of attitude towards sinful people, to actually have that attitude towards the people that we see around us in the world. Like, no, we are not to mix and to mingle and to adopt the culture around us, but is your heart for them to enter into this community? And to see the world transformed by it. And to long for that grace to be received. Pray that it is. We pray with me this morning? Uh, Lord, I thank you for this passage and we could spend much more time on it. But I pray that you would bring it to bear fruit in our lives. Bring it to bear fruit in our lives. May this be a transformed community, transformed by the new covenant that is in Jesus Christ. We stand before you with no merit of our own, but only through Jesus Christ. For his death, his death has paid the price of our sins. And his righteousness is that which enables us to stand before you.
So let us live out, Lord, our holy calling before you. Let this be a community that continues to experience, God, by the grace of your spirit, a conviction and confession that in us, your work of restoration may continue. Amen.
repent Father, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So create in us a humility and a gracious obedience to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us be an encouragement to one another in these things. And bless us now, Lord, we pray as we go. We pray for your blessing just on the activities of this coming week. We pray that our community would be reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. By your gracious spirit, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Go church now in his grace.